Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 86 and abounding love. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. And not only is it true, but it's reliable. It's trustworthy because you are reliable. You are trustworthy. And so, Lord, as we call on you even now, we're, we're reminded of your grace without which we could never approach you without the blood of Jesus Christ, our high priest, our intercessor, and the mediator of the new covenant. And so, Lord, as we look at this great text today, we're reminded of of not only are you sufficient in every way, but your word is sufficient. So, Lord, as we call upon you, as we learn from this great psalm and what you would have to teach us today, I pray, Lord, that our, our confidence in your revealed character in your word would grow, that, that, our, that our prayer lives would deepen and even be enriched and, and grow in depth and height and in love and in, and in expressing our love for you as you have shown us your great love as revealed in the word. So we thank you, Lord, for this time and pray, Lord, that you would use it to minister to hearts and minister to, to my heart, to, to the hearts of those who listen and watch. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 86. Psalm 86 says this. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and you shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give me your give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may, may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Well, this is our reading today from Psalm 86. May God bless the preaching of his word and the hearing of his word for his honor and glory. You know, have you ever had a time in your Christian life that really, uh, where you really were benefited from and you enjoyed and you 
were really uh, caused you to grow in love for the Lord and deep in your prayer life in the Lord. You know, I, I remember praying with my dear mentor and and it was such an example to me because not only would he put his hand on on my hand as we, as we prayed together, but before we would pray, he would ask me about what was happening and then, then he would pray very specifically about the requests that I had. And I, and I remember, and then after he was done, he would come around from his desk and he would give me a hug. And those were some of the moments that I remember most deeply. There, there are many others that I could recall as I've studied this text today, but one of them in particular are, are, are that seems to be the times when I'm walking, walking out in nature, spending time with the Lord in prayer. And we could go on and on and on about our times in prayer and and what's the Lord doing in those prayers. Now, we may not have to, uh, opportunity to pray with mighty saints, whether famous preachers or obscure missionaries, but every single Christian has access to the prayers of the Bible from which we should learn great things about God and then express ourselves in prayer to Him as revealed in the Word. Now, Psalm 86 is, a, is an example of an instructive prayer from a great man of God. It is the only psalm specifically ascribed to King David in the third section of the Psalter, which it runs from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. And like so many of David's other prayers, this psalm pleads from a frightened and a weary soul afflicted with many troubles. It's a great prayer in the firm grasp with which David lays hold of God's mercy, God's grace, and God's love. In verse 4 and 13 of our chapter today, it says this, To you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, for great is your steadfast love towards me. And remember, when you see that word steadfast love, we're talking about the Hebrew word hased. The, the word means covenant love and loyalty to God. It's tied to the faithful character of God as revealed in the word. And this reminds us that all of God's word is not only profitable for us for our reading of the word, for our studying of God's word, but because it's profitable for our reading and studying, it's also profitable for our prayer lives. Now David begins this psalm in a way that reminds us how we are to approach God in humility, as sinners in need of the grace of God. And Jesus emphasized this in his famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, 10 through 14, which says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now the Pharisee stood tall before the Lord, boasting of his goodness, but the tax collector, who freely admitted his sin, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so Jesus concluded that the humble tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other in Luke 18, 10-14. Now, we might think it appropriate for a wicked tax collector to come humbly before God, but Psalm 86, it shows that the spiritually eminent King David was praying in the same manner in verse 1 of our chapter today in Psalm 86, when he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now, no doubt David felt his need in light of the trials he was facing. Now, this Psalm, Psalm 86, was possibly penned during one of the times when he was fleeing from King Saul or from some other mortal danger. 
But when we consider the greatness of God in his all-sufficiency, we realize that we're always poor and that we're always needy. Our precious faith is upheld only by the sovereign grace of God, and so we should always approach God in the spirit that David models in this psalm. Now, the godly person not only realizes our humble position before our Creator, but also sees our neediness as a cause for confidence in prayer. David approaches God as a provider for the poor and the helper of those in need. The Lord proclaims in Psalm 12:5, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now rise. Isaiah 57:15 identifies humility as a key to God's comforting presence. When it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I would dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, in this spirit, David connects his own need with the Lord's love for the humble and the poor. Now, it may seem, however, that David abandons humility in verse 2 of our psalm since he prays, Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. The question is, how, do, how should we interpret the word translated by the ESV as godly? The King James Version renders it holy, and the NIV takes it as faithful to you. Can, can David apply such terms to himself without uh, being guilty of pride? Well, the answer is yes, since David is simply categorizing himself as a sincere servant of the Lord who has been committed to his cause. Now, David is not trusting his own godliness since he says, he trusts in you, you're my God. Now, today, David might pray, I have trusted in Christ. George Horn says, the Christian only pleads in this expression his relation to Christ as being a member of Christ's body, the church. And yet, by naming ourselves as believers and as servants of Christ, we gain a great confidence before God in prayer. And now David further approaches God as, as a sinner seeking grace in verse 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. And in the same way, we must always come to God, realizing his perfect holiness and our own unworthiness. This is why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as part of the Christian standard prayer. It ought to be our regular practice to confess our sins to the, to the Lord and to call on his grace whenever we approach him. 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we approach God, we seek his grace, we look to the cross where our sins are are forgiven. And like David, who relates that he cried this all the day, Christians must place our constant reliance on the grace made available to us as sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And we need to remember how often Jesus prayed on earth for God to save his sinful people. And how much more confident can we be that our prayers will be answered when we consider how Jesus still prays for us as our high priest in heaven, presenting the merits of his blood for our acceptance before God. And in the first stanza of Psalm 86, David prays to God, citing reasons within himself. He is poor, he's lonely, he is a believing servant, and he appeals to God's saving grace. Verse 4 adds the final appeal based on David's commitment to seek his help only from God when he says, Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And when we are not merely mouthing the words of a prayer, but actually lifting up our souls to God, seeking peace, seeking comfort, seeking joy, 
we can be confident that God will answer expressions of his mercy. Now, in the opening stanza of Psalm 86, David approaches God with appeals based on his own attitude and condition. The word for appears in each verse, pointing to various reasons within David. And the second stanza makes his appeal based on truths that David professes concerning God. Verses 5 through 10 contain three, four statements, each of them pertaining to God. And in this way, having come humbly before God, David now expresses his faith in God so as to give him praise. Our prayers should likewise declare to God our grounds of confidence in him as we spend time simply adoring the greatness and mercy of our God. To do this, we must first know God. Philip Riken says, you must have a theology before you can have a prayer life. Knowing the character of God precedes having intimacy with him through prayer. Too many prayers are superficial in their grasp of the character of God. Instead, they ought to be saturated with the praise of his glorious attributes. And we're going to talk about those attributes today, but I want to pause here for just a minute. And I want to ask you, do you just pray however you want to pray? What I mean is, do you just throw up prayers hoping that they'll land and they'll stick? And But, but I want to ask you, are your prayers, are they rooted, are they grounded in the word of God? This is why Jesus told us, the disciples asked, excuse me, you know, teach us to pray, Lord. And what did Jesus go on to do? He gave us the Lord's prayer. So the point is, is God is deeply concerned that our prayers be rooted and grounded in his word. We know that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. It's for every area, every phase of our life, and that it's clear and it's binding in our lives. But how are you doing in this area of your life? How are you doing at praying the word back to God? God's given us 66 books in the word of God. And so how are we doing, how are you doing at taking the word that you read and study and meditate on and you memorize and that you hear preached? How are you doing at taking that word and praying it back to God? Now, in Psalm 86, verse 5, David calls God's attributes to mind with a sleeping, sweeping statement of his covenant faithfulness and salvation when he says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Now, David gets straight to the chief reasons why believers can have confidence in prayer. Because of the goodness of God, his readiness to forgive, and his loving mercy to all who are in the covenant of his salvation. And here the chief encouragement in prayer is knowing the character of God. David has come to know God through his word and through his experience as a believer. And the better he knows God, the more certain he is of God's willingness to help him in need. What an incentive this is for us to study the attributes of God, his divine characteristics as they are revealed in his holy word, and to walk with God through faith so as to know him better. Well, first, David praises God for the goodness of God. We must say that creation itself reveals the goodness of God. We live in a world where rain falls and the sun shines so that living things grow. And God is especially good to his people. He delivered Israel from bondage to Egypt and placed its tribes in the promised land. He has provided us with his words so that we can know the goodness of his heart. All these good blessings should motivate us in prayer and give us reason to praise the Lord. And yet God is also forgiving. Many people are good personally, but indignant towards the bad they see in other people. But God's goodness advances into grace towards sinners. 
In the Old Testament, David could think of numerous occasions when God forgave the sins of his people. In the New Testament, we learn of God's gift of his own son. So great is his resolve to forgive sins of those who call on him. And so, whereas our sins would counsel us to keep a distance from God, knowing that God is good and forgiving on account of Christ should cause us to draw near to God. And moreover, God is faithful. Now, David uses the great covenant word said here which encompasses the loving kindness, the sovereign mercy of God for all who come to him by the way that he has offered in the person and work of Christ. And this reminds us that we may approach God only by the way he has given, namely through faith in his Son. Everyone today has a duty to pray to God as creator, and his goodness is evident to all as a motivation. But forgiveness of sin and covenant mercy are found only in the Savior that the Lord has provided. And so those who wish to pray to God with confidence must thereby approach him through faith in Jesus Christ. We should ask non-Christians in their need, have you prayed to God about your trouble, reminding them that he is good? But when they ask, how do I know that my prayers are blessed by God? We must point them to faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. Must tell them in love, God has provided a savior to reconcile sinners to himself. And when you pray in Jesus' name, which means trusting his atoning a death to reconcile you to God. And we may remind ourselves and others of this as well. As Psalm 85, uh, 86, 5 says, God abounds in steadfast love towards those who approach him in Christ. John Calvin writes that his mercy is so great as to render it impossible for him to reject any who implore his aid. Charles Spurgeon encourages us when he says, God does not dispense his mercy from a slender store which perchance may be so impoverished as to give out altogether. But out of a cornucopia, he pours forth the infinite riches of his mercy. His goodness flows forth in abounding streams towards those who pray and in adoring worship make mention of his name. Psalm 86, 6-7 follows on this statement by specifically applying it to the matter of prayer. When he says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Now, because of the, the grace that David has seen in God, he knows that God will listen to his plea. And when he needs God to save him, the Lord will answer and deliver this is a confidence that comes to men and women who have practiced prayer and gained experience with the Lord. And as the, the Psalms bear testimony, David has great experience in prayer because he was often in need. And this shows us the true value of the trials that God permits us to endure. Only by having needed God and having experienced his answers to prayers, often in anticipated ways, do we gain this confidence that he certainly hears us so we can count on him to act. These thoughts lead David to praise the Lord as the only true God, giving him further reason to be confident in verse 8. There is none like you among the gods of the Lord, nor are there any works like yours. David realized the tragedy of the vast practice of idolatry in his time, when great masses of people worshipped the hideous gods of the Nile and the sensual idols of the East. Praying and making sacrifices to these idols left their adherents without a true God to hear and answer. Now, in contrast, David is a recipient of the true God's revelation in the Word of God, as are readers of the Bible today. He writes in verse 8, Nor are there any works like yours. Only the true God is the creator of all things and the redeemer of his people. 
The great saving acts in the word of God, such as Israel's exodus from Egypt, have no corollary in the annals of idolatry, just as they have no parallel in the vain expectations of modern secular humanism. Moreover, David notes that only, not only should the nations worship Israel's God, but the day is coming when they all will, in verse 9, which says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. This is a remarkable anticipation of the coming Messiah, whose gospel will spread throughout the world, and his return will cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in Philippians 2, 10-11. The Old Testament Jews did not always realize that God would use their witness to bring Gentiles from all over the world to salvation. David not only knew this, but he praised God for it and made it a source of confidence in his prayers. As those who have learned of Jesus coming in the Bible and experienced salvation through the zealous witness of his church, Christians today should be especially keen to take up David's spirit in bold petitions for the missionary advance of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. Today we see once Christian nations turning back to idolatry and pagan e evil, and yet Christians know that this is not because of some deficiency in our God. Rather, we look to the Bible and see that in the end, the people of Christ will gather from every land and stand victorious. John saw this in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The God who ordained victory at the end of history is sure to act within history itself to preserve the life and witness of these same people involved. Psalm 86, 5-7 through 7 emphasizes that God is willing to save his people, being good, forgiving, and abounding in love. But verses 8-10 through 10 declare that God is also able to save his people. Verse 10 rejoices, For you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. The God who could part the Red Sea for Israel to pass through, who, who would stop the sun in the sky to permit Joshua to pursue the Canaanites, and who sent his own son to be born of a virgin womb and to die for sins on the cross, is able to meet any earthly or spiritual need we might face today. And seeing this glorious combination of goodness and of willingness and ability to save strengthens the faith of God's people in prayer. John Calvin notes, the contemplation of God's glory in his works is a true way of acquiring genuine godliness. And in a sense, Psalm 86, 1 through 10, is preparatory for David's final petition, which begins in verse 11. We can see this request, but that David's humble approach and praise for God's attributes have not been wasted. His humility and even adoration have helped shape the priorities of what he requests from God. Now, we can imagine that when David began his prayer, he was consumed with fear of his enemies. And now he is animated by the dread of his own sins and by a longing to be conformed to God's will in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Now, we see this same priority, a personal godliness in Jesus' teaching on prayer. Jesus instructed the disciples to pray to God as Father, to pray for God's name to be kept holy, and then to pray in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. David has the same priority, knowing that his true and his great need is to honor God in a holy life. In fact, David is aware that he can lead a godly life only as God goes before him in his word. 
In verse 11, he says, that I may walk in your truth. And now he remembers the glory and the saving power of God. David is no longer so concerned by his relationship to his enemies in the world, but sees his fearful relationship to God as more significant. In verse 11, he says, teach me your ways, O Lord, he prays. And David would have gladly continued to sing the hymn that takes up this refrain when it says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, teach me thy way. Thy guiding grace afford, teach me thy way. Help me to walk aright more by faith, less by sight. Lead me with heavenly light, teach me thy way. And so the more conscious we are of the goodness and the greatness of our God, the more this hymn will reflect our desires. Now, the second half of verse 11 of our psalm makes an instructive statement when it says, Unite my heart to fear your name. And so David is no longer as concerned about divisions in the land as he is about his own divided heart. He wants his whole heart to trust the Lord's promise and to do the Lord's will. And so he prays for a single-minded purpose in giving reverence to God. The Apostle James warns of the man who doubts God's word, and in James 1, 6 through 8, he says, It's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And now James notes the deadly effects of such a heart when it comes to prayer. In verse 7 of chapter 1 of James, when he says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In fact, Moses urged a united heart when he pronounced the great creed of ancient Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. When he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Jesus urged this same God-centered priority when he taught this in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And having humbled himself before God and cataloged God's goodness and greatness, David makes the united heart praised by the prophets, by the apostles, and by our Lord Jesus, his chief request in prayer. Now, it's inevitable that such a God-centered prayer would immediately add a petition for God to be glorified in verse 12 of our psalm, when it says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. See, what David desires is for the glory and honor of God and light of the salvation of God blessing him in verse 13. And so he says this, For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Israel's king shows us that the way to have a heart that desires to glorify God is to remember his grace in saving our souls. On August 20th, 1608, the French philologist Isaac uh, Cacubon was headed to his Huguenot church with his wife. As their boat made its way down the river sign, the Christian couple was singing the Psalms. Suddenly a barge struck them, casting his wife overboard, and plunging into the river, Cacubon saved her and later made their way to church. And once there, the congregation began to sing, and the great scholar reached into his pocket for his psalter, which had been his wife's present to him on their wedding day, only to discover that it had fallen out of the river. Kashiban stood there grieving his lost treasure while the congregation began to sing Psalm 86. He recovered only when he heard the congregation sing verse 13. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Kashiban realized that after God had saved him from hell by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, he no longer had any reason to complain about any trial or loss suffered during this life. He had been delivered from the depths of hell, so wet or dry, with or without his precious psalm book, he wanted to give praise to God. 
only in verse 14 of Psalm 86, does David finally get around to the original prayer with which he seems to begun when he says, O God, insolent men have risen against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. Now notice that even here David is outraged, not merely over the danger that his enemies pose to his life, but also over their ruthless nature, and especially that they do not give God the honor that he's due. So David is thereby bold to seek God's intervention in verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Here David mentions not only his own need as a servant of God, but also sees God's care for his believing mother, who is also a faithful follower of the Lord. David is concerned at her grief if he is allowed to fall uh, to vicious men. How confident he is then of God's intervening care, given the various interests that God has taken in his life. Now, the psalm ends with David seeking a sign from the Lord, some encouragement to assure him that God was near and he was with him in verse 17 of our psalm. When he says, Show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may, may see and be, and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And so pray, when praying with distressed believers, we should pray for God to act even in a small way to encourage our wavering faith with assurances of his care. Christians have, of course, already received the greatest sign and assurance of favor possible in the gift of his son to bear our sins on the cross in our place. George Horn writes, On this sign, the Christian looks with joy as a great proof that God has helped him and comforted him. And in light of Christ's saving work, we know that our unconverted enemies will be brought to shame if they remain hardened when Christ returns. We've talked today about the benefit of praying in person with eminent and even experienced believers and also the value of studying this prayer of David as a model for our own intercession for others. The psalmist provides us with good advice in coming humbly before God as sinners seeking grace and then in giving praise to God for his goodness and glory. We see the impact that this preparation has had on his petitions. And so by reflecting on what he knows about God's mercy, faithfulness, and grace, David has lifted himself up from a low spiritual state and now prays with power and great effect. And still the greatest lesson we see from David in this psalm and the greatest lesson that one can gain from other godly believers in, in prayer in person is the awareness that prayer is a covenant meeting of God's people with our gracious and glorious Redeemer. If nothing else happens in prayer and if nothing else results from prayer, something of the great significance has occurred when we simply set our hearts before the Lord adoring to contemplate His glory. And when we see the, the true and the great issues of David's prayer in the statement of Psalm 86, 15, which says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If it seems that we have heard these words before, this was God's answer to Moses when Israel's great leader made his great request in Exodus 33:18. Please show me your glory. This is the chief issue in prayer and the great desire that should be on our hearts in prayer. To commune in faith with the God of grace and to be made aware of his glory. God answered Moses' prayer by placing him in a cleft on the rock where he would be safe while the Lord passed by. And there Moses heard these words in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, in every setting, in every need, in the, fa in the face of the world and its false glories and temptations, 
Our greatest need today is to know the Lord. And we only can know him through his word. And this knowledge gives substance to our prayers. But God would have us know him in our hearts. And when we seek his face in prayer, God makes the affairs of earth fade into seeming insignificance. And the knowledge of his glory as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as we see in Psalm 86, 15, is sufficient alone to meet our every need. So I'm going to ask you again the question. How are you today doing at doing what David describes in this, in this psalm? How are you doing at taking yourself by the hand and reminding yourself of God's attributes? You know, you might be facing a, an incredible amount of anxiety and depression and discouragement, suffering. And those seasons of life are hard. They're, they're really difficult. They're challenging, as, as no doubt all of us know. But the Lord is good. The Lord is forgiving. The Lord is merciful. And so as you're going through those seasons, remind yourself of these truths. Take yourself by the hand. God has given us 66 books in the word of God. And they have a unity. They have a point. They have a goal. They have an apex. And that goal meets, that apex meets in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. See, Jesus alone is sufficient in every way. That's why when I started this study, I prayed that, that we would know our high priest, Jesus. We know that, that when Jesus, pray, Jesus said this in John 19.30, it is finished. It was signed, it was sealed, it was delivered in the blood of our prophet, priest, and king, who alone is the only way to God. And so maybe today you're struggling. You're struggling with fear, anxiety, bitterness, resentment, whatever it is. I want to plead with you to go to the great prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, who is even now making intercession for you on account of the treasure of his own blood. <laughs> what, a, what a thought. There is only one as the, one comfort in life and death, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, and that is in God alone, who has revealed himself in his word. And so to know God, to love God, to treasure God, we must know him as he's revealed in the word. And such a knowledge will help us. It'll inform, should inform, should ground, should shape our prayer lives as we're always before his face. And God, through Christ, is even summing us even now in this moment through his word in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, to come before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And who doesn't need his help? We are, we are needy and he is mighty. And yet he's also gracious and loving. And he invites us to cast our burdens, to cast our cares on him. Let's pray. Lord, um, there is so many things going on in our world, so many things going on in our personal lives today. And as we've looked at today, you are good, you are faithful, you remain the same, you are reliable, you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Help us, Lord, to do what you instructed the Israelites to do, to, to remember, to remember all that you have already done. And, and even all that you already will, that you are doing and that you will do in the future. Lord, rem, help us to remember. Help us to remember your goodness, your faithfulness, your justice, your mercy, your beauty, your wonder, the glory of your grace revealed in your word 
in the person and work of Christ, from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. And help us, Lord, that help, help our prayer lives to be rooted and grounded and shaped by your word. And help us, Lord, in seasons of doubt and anxiety and hurt and struggle. Help us, Lord, to cast our cares upon the Lord who loves us, who cares for us, who is there for us. Oh, we're just, we have such a great need of you. And such, you are such a great Savior. Help us, Lord, to, to know you more, to love you more, to treasure you all the more. All of our days, with, all of our, with every breath, for the honor and glory of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.